Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Afghanistan. Where to begin? Uh, for most of us, Afghanistan had, had largely slipped from our radar screen after several years of relative quiet and stability. Uh, Donald Trump had talked about leaving, but it wasn't clear whether that was actually going to happen. And then overnight, it seems, Joe Biden orders America's immediate exit from the country and chaos ensues. I started into creating a list of issues, which I normally do for these shows, that we, uh, we, we want to talk about, then the list has now run to six pages. And so instead of me going through this, I decided to cut to the chase and talk to some real experts who've been following this for years, and I hope and will give us some insights into how we got here, where we are, and where we think this is going. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Stephen Bryan, has 50 years of experience in, in national security. And again, I came to a, not a six-page list, but a 16-page list of achievements. Stephen, could you give us a quick... Uh... I'll try. I'll do it really quickly. Um, I was uh, started out as a professor of political science at Lehigh University, came to Washington and joined the Foreign Relations Committee staff. I was the director of the Near East Subcommittee of the Foreign Relations Committee. And later on, I went to the Defense Department where I was the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense and Founder and Director of the Defense Technology Security Administration. And after I left government, that's about 20 years worth, uh, I went into the private sector and among other things, I was the president of a very large multinational uh, company here in Washington, D.C. Welcome. Thank um, you. I can't uh, wait to dig into this with you. I don't want to give you any more propaganda. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle Shedler is the director of uh, and senior analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. And since this uh, this issue with the Afghanistan bears not just on our national security abroad, but here at home, thought you'd have an incredible insight into this. Kyle, what's a bit of, bit of your background? Uh, so I've been involved in studying um, terrorist and insurgent uh, ideologies, really, uh, for about a little more than a decade. Uh, I got started uh, at a nonprofit that did um, uh, anti-Semitism, helping uh, Jewish students deal with anti-Semitism on college campuses, uh, a lot of which was coming out of uh, Islamist organizations in the United States. So I specialized in uh, Islamist organizations in the U.S. and then globally, uh, how they interact with terrorist groups, uh, what their agenda is, how they how they seek to uh, foment their ideology. Okay, thank you. Um, Stephen, could you frame this for us? Because this, as we talked about, this seems to fan out in, in billions of different directions. With Afghanistan, I think there, there are two, two major questions. The, the first is, you know, why did we precipitously leave? What was behind it? And the second question, which I think is fascinating, is that when President Trump had proposed withdrawing U.S. troops, the U.S. military told him that was a bad idea, don't do it. When Mr. Biden did it, or announced it, or even before he announced it, 
there wasn't a peep or a boo from the Pentagon saying you shouldn't do it. In fact, they embraced it. It's strange. It seems to me this is very strange. And one wonders what's going on. So, as I understand it, he had, uh, Austin wasn't defense secretary, but all the chief of staffs, when, when Trump was president, says you can't do it. That's right. And then he announced, Biden says, I'm going to do it, and they just fold over. Yeah, and then fold. Biden has the audacity to blame Trump for something he never did. Yeah. And, and was advised not to do because of the implications of what would happen, Kyle, which is exactly what happened. Kyle, how do you, what do you, what's your take? No, I think that's, uh, I think that's right. Uh, it's, it is truly remarkable um, that you had a administrative state, you know, all of the elements of the Department of Defense, the State Department, who were vociferously against exit, um, all of a sudden turn around and execute the most incompetent evacuation imaginable. Um, you know, when you had uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, sitting there telling congressmen that Bagram Air Base was not tactically necessary. Uh, I mean, you don't have to be uh, a, a longtime military practitioner to know, well, the more air, you know, the more airstrips you have getting people out, the faster you can get them out. Right. Um, and, and that was all just uh, ignored. And it is really fascinating that, that this was the, 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 that either the Biden administration had the ability to simply steamroll uh, the administrative state, or they did not see it as their role to get in the way of this president, whereas they did see uh, that they had a role to to prevent the Trump administration from executing policy, which I think is very curious. So Bagram Air Base, it seems to me, now I'm, a, I'm new to this issue, but if you look at Afghanistan on a map and you've got Pakistan, Iran, the stands, you know, the Russian right. piece. Um, India's claiming a little bit through Pakistan. Uh, China has got a 57-mile border with Afghanistan. And so you've got four nuclear powers surrounding Afghanistan and one wannabe nuclear power with, with Iran. Maybe they are. Maybe they are already. I wouldn't so, be, I'm, I'm not prepared to say they are not. Well, that's that's on our long list of uh, <laughs> where to go with it. Well. So, but but the, if, as you look at that, you think, well, gee, wouldn't we want to have a presence there? Let's forget about country building. I mean, remember we went in twenty years ago, and I think we were pretty smart. We aligned with was the Northern uh, Northern Alliance, Northern Alliance, yeah. and we got all the tribes working together. They hated the Taliban, and we won. And at that point, we probably just should have said, okay, well, we've won, and maybe keep an air base there, but then stop but instead we start a country building that's right that's the that that seems to be our achilles heel we've tried it not only in, in uh, afghanistan we tried it in vietnam laos cambodia you know these places iraq iraq uh, and it's failed in every case maybe we should learn a lesson and not only that but i mean the the kind of country we were trying to build uh where you know it would have been maybe one thing to say to the biggest warlord that we worked with, okay, now you're in charge, don't make us come back here. Uh, it's another thing to spend $800 million on gender studies uh, <laughs> over the course of 20 years because you want to turn Afghanistan, uh, a place which hasn't even managed monarchy, wait, wait, into, wait, a, wait. into a modern liberal democracy. Wait, 
$800 million? I think it was like seven hundred and sixty nine okay, million. Round, we can round yeah. up. Okay. About but, that, but, yeah. But it really gender studies in uh in well, Everett Dirksen used to say hundred million here, hundred million there. <laughs> Pretty soon you're talking about real money. <laughs> but even, you know, I mean we, we were such uh, we're so out of touch with their culture. Didn't the US State Department run a flag celebrating Pride Day? Um what, a couple months ago? That's right. Yeah. Uh, over the embassy in Kabul. And Taliban's pretty much declared that they're going to run the country based on Sharia law. And what does Sharia law mean for women? It means that they will mind their place and wear their burqas and stay out of the way if they want to stay, stay alive or not be whipped in public or some other humiliation. So, you know, the, the implications for Americans having suffered through 20 years of Afghanistan and the people and the men and women who served in Afghanistan are, 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 are terrible. I, you know, I, I think I heard this morning that the Veterans Affairs suicide hotline has had 35,000 calls in the last 60 days. There's deep distress in the veterans community right now. My, do my daughter is one of them. And... Uh, which we call. Where's your, where's your daughter serve? She served in Iraq. She, okay. she was a lieutenant colonel, uh, uh, two tours, uh, one of which uh, ended her military career. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, she's also a practicing uh, psychologist, and she is deeply concerned about veterans. She gets thousands of calls now all the time. It's, it's, people, are, they're, they're terribly upset because, you know, they, if, if we had been actually defeated, you know, we lost on the battlefield. That's one thing. But to run away is another. And, and, you know, these are people whose lives were lost, many wounded, many thousands of wounded, uh, people who, who sacrificed themselves in these situations. And now we run away. It's very hard for them to, to take that on mentally. It's, it's, a, it's very disturbing for them. And I understand that. My daughter understands that. It's... It's a terrible thing. Kyle, do you know them? Yeah, I mean, I know a number of uh, veterans that fought uh, both in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, the, the we talk a lot about post-traumatic stress, but one of the most tra traumatic things that can happen is you can lose a war. And you can sort of lose a war post-facto. So a lot of these guys have served. They went over there. They did their time. They did a, you know, they did an honorable job. They did, a, in a lot of cases, they did a successful job. And they were heroes. I and mean, they let's were, be honest about it. These and are then, very courageous people. And then to have that, uh, the reason for having done all those things taken away from you after the fact, uh, is very traumatic. Yeah. Well, you Obama know? did it in Iraq, didn't he? Mm -hmm. He pulled us out. It wasn't as messy as this Afghanistan thing for us. It was messy for the Iraqis. So it's one thing for Biden to do it. But to have Lloyd Austin, who had been a general, to have uh, um, Milley do it, and all the other chiefs of staff who presumably are, have an emotional connection and leadership responsibility for those who serve under them, how can you do this to your own, your own people? They're gutless wonders, aren't they? I mean, to put it bluntly, I mean, it's awful to think that, a, I mean, it, look, if they had objected, and the president says, I don't care, you're going to do this, you know, civilians rule. Okay, I would understand that. But there's no evidence that ever happened. In fact, the reverse. You know, the, the head of CENTCOM uh, is saying, oh, well, the Taliban were our counterparts. We worked very well with them. Huh? Well, 
There was that Washington Post article uh, where apparently uh, General McKenzie talked with the Taliban and agreed that the Taliban would be allowed to provide security in Kabul and we would provide security for the airport. Uh, If that Washington Post article is correct, the Taliban offered to allow us to control security in Kabul and we said no, which means all of the Taliban checkpoints, all of the problems uh, that we had getting Americans and and special immigrant visa holders through those checkpoints to get to the airport, uh, all of those were, 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 were a cell phone. They were, they were an own goal because we could have provided that security and, and made sure that they got through. Well, let's all we get back to, to. The, to the real fundamental point. Uh, the real fundamental point is that the U.S. cut a deal with the Taliban secretly, secretly, uh, that they would turn over control of everything to them even before the battles were lost. In early July, we started pulling out of bases. By July 3rd, I think that's the right date, we were out of seven bases, including Bagram. And by the end, we were out of 15 bases. We just left. And and this was part of the deal. It had to be. Uh, As we ferreted out people and and removed ourselves, leaving behind billions of dollars of equipment and everything else. So I think that, that the... The real story, and by the way, there's a, today there was a, a transcript that uh, was uh, released between a conversation between uh, uh, President Biden and, and uh, Ashraf Ghani, who was the president of Afghanistan. Ashraf Ghani. Continue. Uh, and and, and it's very interesting because Biden knew fully well that we were leaving. Ghani must have known by then. And there's a line in this which I think is really amazing where Biden says, we will continue to provide close air support if we know what your plan is. Well, there's two things about that. His plan was to try and survive, of course. Uh, but, <laughs> but we couldn't provide air, close air support because we had no longer had any basis to provide it from. And Biden knew that. So, you know, what's going on here? It's a con job. You know, it's, it's a... It's a a tap dance to try and, you know, uh, make pretend that we are still talking to Ghani when, in fact, we were talking to the Taliban only. Which we had been doing, I mean, which we had been doing for years through through the uh, the Taliban embassy in, in Qatar. That's right. we, we pushed the Afghan government, which we were supposedly backing, out of the negotiations and negotiated solely with the Taliban for years. Yeah, ostensibly because... We couldn't get the Afghan government to agree to commit suicide. So so we just okay. did it by ourselves. Let me do a quick check here. We're, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Stephen Bryan and, and Kyle Scheidler. And we're talking about sort of the stunning deception that went on and the, uh, the lack of uh, character that our senior leaders in the military seem to have exhibited, not seem, uh, did. Uh, but I want to turn now to this president of Afghanistan who was last seen bundling $169 million and getting on a plane. Did he actually have cash in a suitcase? Was that, yeah, was it was that, money. Was that just sent him cash money? money. I, I don't, the only question I have is now, he who, was what kind of money? We put him in there. Yeah. And this was a, this was a, a Davos uh, president, if there ever was one. I mean, he gave TED Talks. He'd written about how to save failed states, and this guy was was big on the lecture tour. And we put him in. He was utterly unconnected with the tribal cultures of Afghanistan. In fact, in his TED Talk, he said, 
Well, you know, Afghanis don't really understand cap capital in terms of capital formation. They do understand cash. <laughs> and he was referring about the, the, the well, he was one of them. <laughs> Apparently so, yeah, when he, when he finally flew out on that helicopter. I, I'm laughing, but it's just, it, it, the American people did not know a lot of all this. Now, with the Trump deal that he was talking about, people say it was a mistake for him to be talking with the Taliban. Was that a blunder? Mistake for whom? Trump. Donald Trump was negotiating well, with the Taliban. I, I, my own personal view is he shouldn't, should not have. I, I think that was an error on his part. But it's a big difference between talking to someone and giving away the shop. And he didn't give away anything. And I think it's, it, it's really strange. Even uh, Mr. Biden's latest talk to the American people where he says that, you know, it's Trump's fault somehow. It wasn't Trump's fault. Trump had, it was Biden's fault. It was Biden's decision from the start to the finish. And I think, you know, Trump, we have to remember, Trump inherited those negotiations. And one of the sticky things about Washington, D.C. is that a lot of people in Washington, D.C. think that peace processes and negotiations can go on forever. And I think Donald Trump came into office with the idea that negotiations are to be won. Uh, and you, inf you know, you get what you wanted out of the negotiation and then you execute the deal, uh, which is not the Washington, D.C. culture. Um, and so he saw a negotiation taking place and said, OK, let's try to win it. And um, from what we understand, you know, the Taliban didn't execute on certain uh, requirements that that uh, the Trump deal had in place. And so they walked, they essentially walked away. So there was no deal. So this notion that somehow Biden inherited a deal with Trump had struck was, was wrong. That's right. I mean, it, it, he didn't inherit anything other than a meeting place in Qatar. Which is uh, the, another part of the Washington, D.C. peace process culture, which is you have to adhere to deals that, he, that aren't struck, uh, that, aren't, <laughs> that aren't agreed. He's laughing because he knows I'm right. <laughs> Uh, that you know you have a deal on the table and you make an offer and the other side says no and then you go ahead and do what you said you were what do what you offered to do anyway, uh, which happens in D.C. all the time. Well, I think we should add that 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 in that there was a lot of criticism in Washington and still is uh, that the Afghan regime was pretty corrupt, uh, and it was, and it was. I mean, there was no doubt about that. So was the Iraqi regime corrupt? I mean, this this is just a fact of life. I think. But you don't make national security decisions based on corruption. At least I don't think you should. I think you make it on your national interest. What's your national interest here? And, and what's the best, you know, from the point of view of, of cutting and running from Afghanistan, you, you have really harmed the U.S. posture around the world. Nobody will trust us right now. Nobody should trust us right now. And that's evidence of it, you know. And, and the more information that comes out that shows that this was, you know, that our military uh, didn't fight for it, they didn't want it, they, they were willing to go along with it, they were weak reeds, uh, contemptuous in some ways. Uh, that really hurts us. That really hurts us everywhere, in, in the Middle East, especially, in Asia, certainly. Uh, that, that, I think, is a, a big price to pay for what I think was a really foolish and dangerous thing. Kyle, who's been getting on the planes? I, w I wish I knew. Um, the Biden administration has been extremely cagey about the question of who are we actually evacuating from Afghanistan. 
they like to cite these top numbers. The last one I saw was 125,000 about. And then, you know, they said, well, 7,000 of those. 125,000, is that a number you believe or do you? That's a number I heard. Okay, all right. <laughs> Whether I believe it's a top number or not, it's it's been quoted. Okay. And of that, 7,000 were uh, special immigrant visa holders uh, and 5,000 about approximately What's that mean, Americans. special immigrant visa holder? So a special immigrant visa is for uh, Iraq and Afghanistan for individuals that were engaged in helping the U.S. effort. So various, this is the kind of uh, person that most Americans but, think we should be but helping. But I've heard that's morphed Translators, into, um, government employees, those sorts of things. But I've heard that's assets. morphed into people like Uber drivers and caterers and all sorts of it people. It absolutely that, has. And then there's an expanded, I think it's called a P2 program, which is an even larger subset of people. So, so the Afghans, 66,000 Afghan soldiers died fighting along us. Right. I mean, what does this say about their, their sacrifice? Well, they've been sold out, doesn't that? That's what it says. I mean, totally sold out. You know, everyone said, well, they didn't fight, they didn't fight. But, you know, here, here you have an army that lost its air cover, which the U.S. provided all along. The Afghan Air Force was pitifully poor, so the, we provided the air cover, the close air support, the, the counterinsurgency capabilities. Uh, secondly, their supplies were cut off because we we provided the supplies that disappeared so they realized they were just cut adrift and they had no no help anymore their counterparts who were working with American Americans and some from NATO uh, left just left in the and they didn't just leave you know and say goodbye and we have to go home now they left in the middle of the night Bagram was overnight oh yeah three o'clock in the morning yeah they all just departed they didn't tell the other guys the Afghan guards had no idea. They turned off the electricity. They yanked out the comms and the radars, and they went. Seems to me like this whole chain of command ought to be court-martialed. Well, you know, that's on CENTCOM. CENTCOM planned this operation. CENTCOM Central is... Command. Okay. Uh, which had responsibility for, has responsibility for the Middle East. By the way, they just jammed Israel into CENTCOM. They used to be in European command, UCOM. And I think the Israelis have to rethink that pretty quickly because it's not the place they want to be these days. CENTCOM made a mess. Now, you know, you can say, okay, the Pentagon was weak and they didn't plan and they were, you know, the whole thing was screwed up. But the fact is that was on CENTCOM. They had, they had the, the responsibility. And what does the head of CENTCOM say? Taliban, Taliban really helped us. That's what he said. They were great. They helped us assure security to get people to the airport. Well, I remember people getting shot and killed and hanged and mutilated and every other damn thing trying to get to the airport. So what's he talking about? Kyle, you do domestic terrorism. Now, I know Mark Milley. Is it General Mark Milley? He's, he's worried about white rage. Um, yes, he is. We, we he may find he gets it now. Well, yeah, he's, I've got, there's some white rage right <laughs> here right. <laughs> um, directed at him. Uh, but what about real terrorists? What about people? Do what, how many of these 125,000 do we think will be um, uh, security problems inside the United States? Well, we know something like a, somewhere between 100 and 350 have already uh, pinged on the biometric screenings that we do for actual terror ties. Okay. Uh, I think that number is probably going to be low. Uh, we know that the French are already surveilling 
uh, Afghan evacuees because they were identified as having Taliban ties. Uh, the United Kingdom uh, had an individual arrive in Birmingham, England, who was on the no-fly list. Uh, so <laughs> apparently you can be on the no-fly list and still get on a, a military air flight out of Kabul uh, was, was the lesson there. So you know, the answer is we have no idea. Uh, and they're going to tell you that they're vetting these people. They're going to tell you that they have information about who these people are, and they don't. Not and really. we have an open border. You know, people are crossing our border every day. Some of them are Afghans. Yeah, they just moved the southern border to Kabul airport, essentially, as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, and it's open. I mean, it's, it's, it's very reckless. And, and, and I think, you know, our, our goal in Afghanistan from the beginning was supposed to be to deal with terrorism. Al-Qaeda, you know, uh, was the target. The original target. And well, now, the, the, by the way, the al-Qaeda guys are returning. The ones that left Afghanistan are now coming back. Um, so, so break it down. Taliban, ISIS, al-Qaeda, for those of us that don't follow this, I mean, they're really making common cause, aren't they? With They have a common cause. They are all jihadists. They are all waging... Uh, they're all waging jihad to so these, oppose Islamic law. So these law. distinctions that we some people try to make, oh, well, there's the Taliban, that's, that's just blurring uh, yeah, over. The notion that the Taliban has more in common with us than it has with ISIS is is a type of insanity you can only find inside the Beltway. It's nuts. So another insanity inside the Beltway. How many stole, How many troops do we have there, 3,500? At the end? Yeah. Before we pulled, 2,500, I think, was the number. Yeah, so, until they plussed it up. The so what are we doing with 25,000 Humvees there? I mean, there, you know, we left $90 billion worth of military equipment, and you look at the numbers of pieces of equipment we had for 2,500 soldiers. I mean, is it, were they going to set up an Army surplus shop in Bagram Air Base? There was an article this morning that said that... Uh, the Taliban now have enough arms, I mean, the size of its military, including all the equipment that we left, that it's larger now than seven or eight European states yeah. and Ukraine. But, 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 but <laughs> okay, well, but if it were servicing a number of sur sur soldiers who would actually use the equipment, we just, we, we'd spend we billions and billions of dollars. We didn't take it out. We were cutting up equipment we, we, for And a we while. never do. I mean, most people don't realize that, but we almost never take equipment out of places. Um, we'll, we'll blow it up in place, we'll disable it, we'll sell it to the local government, but we don't take things home because it's too expensive. And a lot of this stuff's pristine. I've seen the photos. I mean, it's just lined up. You see all these Humvees with, with guns on top and all that, just lined up brand new. And then the other thing is people don't remember, we needed a deal with the Russians to get equipment into Afghanistan when the war started right. to move it through, through the Central Asian countries. Well, that all got cut off. So we could not use the railways and, and ships and stuff that we used to bring equipment in. The only option we had was air. Who, was cut, who cut it off? That was part of the falling apart of relations between the U.S. and, and Russia in the past you know, 20 years. Okay, so in terms of managing men and material, the Defense Department has done a lousy job on both. Fair well, statement. They clearly didn't care about it. Didn't care. Yeah, I mean, it's just money, right? And... You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Kyle Scheidler and uh, um, Stephen Byron, and we're Brian, and we're talking about the massive incompetence and corruption that it seems to exist inside the Pentagon and the defense establishment. 
and why yours truly is getting a very sinking feeling about where this is going for the United States. Bagram Air Base. Who now is going to end up with control of Bagram Air Base? Well, the Taliban has it. Initially. Yeah. Don't you think that that's oh, going to? Don't you uh, think? Don't you think the Chinese have got their eyes set on that? Don't you think they're? If you look at all those state actors around there, don't you believe? It, it's that, possible. Uh, I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I think that the Taliban have—they're very ambitious now, as they should be. <laughs> I mean, you know, they have an air force. I mean, we left them one. Can they fly it? Well, they flew some helicopters yesterday, including a guy hanging from one. Um, yeah, whether they are flying the helicopter or they're just pointing a pistol at the head of the guy who's flying the I, helicopter I read this doesn't morning, really matter. It sounds like that's yeah, I read the case. this morning that uh, they're now recruiting some Afghan pilots that were trained by us to fly these aircraft. Basically, they have the, uh, the, uh, the coin aircraft, which are uh, Brazilian aircraft that were expensively made in the United States, but they're Brazilian origin is a propeller-driven aircraft, and they have lots of helicopters. So that's the Air Force. And one C-130 I saw. I don't know why that was left. So how does this play out with China and with the other state actors around? Oh, they're not going to just let that sit there. And well, the Chinese, of course, are, are interested in uh, uh, two, two things. One is a deal that <clears throat> will keep the Taliban from supporting the uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, because the Uyghurs are Muslims that the Chinese don't like, and the Uyghurs don't like them, and that's part of it. And then there's a lot of minerals and, and wealth in Afghanistan that could be could be exploited if there's peace. Trillion dollars worth of rare least, minerals. Yeah. yeah. So especially rare earth materials. Yeah. So you know the Chinese are not foolish. I mean they know how to run a business. Well, my guess is they're going to use the. Uh, their financing is the vehicle to get in. I mean, they're financing most of Pakistan now, and they're very influential there. You go in, if you're Chinese, you come in and say, well, look, you get Bagram Air Base, you can't really run it. We can help you do that. And we'll refurbish this and do this, and we'll build some new highways well, and things they, like they, that. And pretty yeah. soon, they're, uh, they've are they got the whip hand. Yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in what the Russians might do, because they have a you know, big black eye in Afghanistan of their own. Um, and whether they will approach Taliban. They haven't recognized the Taliban yet, uh, but I think they're moving in that direction. But they're all leaving their embassies in Kabul. Their, their embassies Kabul. operating, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And China. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody. And By I, the way, uh, the administration said, well, maybe we'll recognize the Taliban. And this, uh, this close, this close. So I mean, I they've think already floated development aid to the Taliban. That's right. Yeah. So they're they're getting in a position. I I would think, and they won't do it right away because they're afraid of the political reaction at home. But two months from now, I'll, I'll bet we reopen the U.S. embassy in Kabul. I'm concerned about the Qataris and the, the Turks because I know the Turks want Kabul air, airport really bad. They probably want Bagram too. Uh, the Qataris were the first people to land a commercial jet uh, following the U.S. handover sure. of the airport to the Taliban. Um, Qatari relationship with the Taliban is excellent. Uh, they were the moderators for all of our uh, discussions with the Taliban over the past, you know, 10 plus years. The Turks' relationship with the Taliban is okay. There's some tension there. The Turks, I think, if they get the airport, that's where you're going to see some interesting interactions with, between them and China. They are definitely pushing the Central Asian 
country, uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, has a has a large uh, sort of Turkic uh, supremacy That's right. uh, notion. So he wants to exert influence over Central Asia. He wants to exert influence over the Uyghurs in China. Uh, so that could get very interesting very quickly. Yeah, I'm not sure about it. I mean, the, there's no doubt that Turkey's very ambitious, especially in the stands. Uh, southern Russia, too. The Ottoman stamping ground, and even before that, a Byzantine stamping ground. It goes back to 2,000 years almost. So, yeah, uh, and, and Erdogan is, is very clearly uh, pushing that kind of approach. I don't know if it's going to play in Afghanistan. The Taliban are, are very difficult as the Turks will find out. <laughs> you've talked, you've written also about sort of, you, you've talked about a strategic retreat that we seem to be making worldwide, the United States yes. seems to be making worldwide. You guys have both covered this. What, what's, what's happening? Well, we are in the middle of a, a major strategic uh, retreat, not only in Afghanistan. Yeah, obviously there. Iraq, Middle East. I mean, let me just put a few little items on the table. We pulled out all our air defenses from the UAE, from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar, and from Jordan. Especially Jordan is really a surprise to me. Um, why did we do that? We claimed we needed them for something else, but we don't. We didn't put them anywhere else. We just pulled them out. And we didn't ask. We just took. So we, we essentially left them on their own. Um, we have taken our bombers, which we kept in Guam, the B-52s and the B-1s, out of Guam and pulled them back to the United States. Uh, why? Why did we, you know, it's not clear exactly why we did that. Of course, our aircraft carrier that was stationed at Yokohama has been used in the Afghanistan, uh, supposedly used. I don't know what purpose it has, uh, but it's not, in, it's not in Asia right now. So... Whether it goes back or not, I don't know. We just did an exercise. It was a good exercise in the Western Pacific uh, with our allies, the British, uh, the Australians, the Japanese, and the Indians, which is a very good thing, I think. And that was the, the one hopeful sign, I'll say, that I can see. But otherwise, uh, the, the handwriting is not so good, and, and a lot of people in Asia are very nervous, especially about Taiwan. But also, of course, that means they're very nervous about China. The Japanese especially have said that any attack on Taiwan would be existential for Japan. So yeah, Taiwan's, about, what, 70 miles from, uh, from yeah, Japan? a little bit more, but not much more. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, from Japan. No, it's further. But depends. Well, what, I think what, from the southern island. If, if you, you take, take the southern uh, island, yeah. yeah. But it's close to Okinawa. Right. Uh, and, and uh, of course, it's very close to China. Well, in the Middle East, pulling these, these weapons out... Isn't that a way to make nice with Iran? I mean, they, they, Biden seems. Yeah, I mean, all these folks seem to think that Iran is like we've got to reestablish our Iran deal and bring them into the nuclear club. I mean, what, what is what's going on? Well, there? I think that's a cover story for for a different argument. I mean, in other words, the the nuclear talks, whatever they are, which have been going on for a while now, since Biden came came back into came into office. Um, is, I think, a cover for what we really have in mind, which is the political alignment with Iran. Uh, and that means, you know, to diminish the role of Saudi Arabia and, and to admit that Iran now has, you know, Iran is going to be in uh, Iraq, essentially running Iraq, uh, Lebanon, 
Syria, where it has Hezbollah forces, which are proxies for Iran, and Iranian advisors. What's the global elite's fascination with Iran? Well, I think it's a big country. It's a rich country. Uh, it's a powerful, increasingly powerful country, at least on paper. Has a huge amount of missiles. Probably already, in my opinion, may already have nuclear weapons. Well, that makes it sound legitimate. Does that mean we abandon well, <laughs> everybody else? In order? Well, that's the problem. Well, and I think they also, I mean, one of the things they hold against the other regional allies, and this was, you know, a big part of the Trump administration Middle East plan was, because both Trump and Biden wanted to get out of the Middle East to a certain extent, and to get out, you have to sort of take a hand in who's going to replace you. And the under Trump, we clearly chose the Israelis, the Saudis, the Emiratis, who are sort of traditional regional allies. And we were trying to push them up and get them to cooperate as closely as possible. And the Biden administration and the Obama administration before it, their preference for who replaces the United States in the Middle East has been around since 2009, if not earlier. And probably this goes back, you know. It's an old story. It's an old story, but Trump, I think, held the line properly and, and, and uh, was very effective in that regard. And, of course, the Abraham Accords were really a huge breakthrough in terms of the geostrategic. Abraham Accords were? The deal between uh, Israel and the UAE and uh, others uh, to, to create uh, peace between these, uh, which also means that Israel and, and those countries can cooperate militarily, which is the really important. And, and economically, too. And economically and technologically as mm -hmm. well. But, uh, you know, you, so you have that. I think that was a piece of genius by Trump. Uh, and he deserves he deserves a Nobel Prize for it, in my opinion. If that was worth anything anymore. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Well, it'd be nice to give it to somebody who deserved it as opposed to the alternative. Uh, you're, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with two experts from the Center for Security Policy, Kyle uh, Scheidler and uh, Stephen Bryan, and uh, we're, we're talking about uh, what the fascination is with Iran and where, where we think this might go from here. Uh, is this really signaling, though, that Biden does not have a foreign policy? Biden only has a domestic policy, and what he really wants to do is suck everything no, out of our involvement around the world? No, he has a foreign policy. So retreat from obligations to our former ally, our allies and former allies as much as possible, line up with Iran, and then find a way to make it. I think he's looking for a way to make a deal with the Chinese. I think that's coming. I, I think we'd be fools not to realize that uh, he's going to sell us out in China. I, I think he is. I think that's right. But I do think there's something oh, to the notion that the Biden administration is inwardly focused, that they see enemies uh, domestically, not uh, not overseas. Uh, you know, you had for the first time ever, the Biden administration directed our office, the director of national intelligence to uh, do reports on domestic threats, not international threats, which is their role and their purpose. So I think there is definitely something about the Biden administration that they, they see actual enemies abroad as friends, and they see fellow countrymen who <laughs> yes. disagree with them as enemies. You got a point. Uh, but, you know, why would we cut the defense budget when, when uh, China is growing more powerful and challenging us in Asia and elsewhere around the world? Well, let's, let's dig into the China piece, because 
China, all the major corporations now are just think we are being ridiculous to think China is anything other than honest intentions and we got to keep doing business with them. You talk to the NBA, Nike, you know, Walt Disney. I mean, everybody wants to be in China to get hands on that 400 billion person uh, uh, middle class. Uh, and our social media companies are making common cause with China. I mean, Google will work with China, but they won't work with their own defense department. Although they might work with this Defense Department, yeah. <laughs> that may be changing. Things have changed, yes. So it, it, but it, it seems like there's this realignment where a lot of the elites and all the major corporations and the other power players are also lining up on China's side on a lot of these issues. And you're saying now, you think that's going to go? The administration's going to, going to, going to yeah, I sell think us that, out. Well, let's see what the Chinese strategy is first. I mean, the Chinese strategy is to dominate what they call the First Island Chain which means right in the middle of that chain is Taiwan. So the question becomes how to get Taiwan. And will the U.S. stay out of it if, we get, if they get it? And, and that's the game. Uh, and of course, they've been threatening Taiwan now with the military overflights, uh, bombers, fighter planes, naval exercises, missile exercises. I was in Taiwan in 96 when they had a big missile threat to Taiwan. It's very scary, by the way. Uh, so that's what that's what's going on. And I think the Chinese strategy is to create a, a kind of a situation where the Ty Taiwanese basically surrender. Uh, that's what they're after. They don't want a war if they can avoid it, but they want to put a lot of pressure on Taiwan and on the United States. And, and they're doing it quite effectively, I think. From a capitalistic point of view, to use your terminology, you know, our major companies, for the most part, are doing a lot of business in China, and they want to continue doing a lot of business in China, so they, they clearly are biased. Uh, so in, industrially, you know, we've given most of our industry over to China anyway, haven't we? I mean, if you look at the picture, uh, semiconductors, computers, electronics, automobiles, I mean, uh, automobile components, uh, everything has been moved, you know, you can't buy anything today that doesn't say made in China on it. Uh, so we, we've allowed that to happen without any attempt, any real attempt. The only real one was a sort of attempt by President Trump to put some, some, of, the, uh, uh, some of these industries uh, into the United States if he could. He tried to do it with the Taiwanese. Even Taiwan, by the way, has invested a couple of hundred billion dollars in China. Your Apple computers, Apple uh, iPhones are made in China by mm -hmm. a company called Foxconn. And Foxconn's owned by, a, they have a million employees in China. And Foxconn is owned by Hanhai Precision, which is a Taiwanese company. People don't realize that. So, I mean, all of this means that our economy is increasingly and utterly dependent on China today. Very risky. So, so you see the end game as Taiwan being sort of enveloped and sucked into mainland China over time rather than something that Yeah, involves... well, the old Kuomintang in, 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 uh, in Taiwan, which was the Chiang Kai-shek's party. Sure, yeah, yeah. And yeah. is the opposition party right now, the DPP, the Democratic uh, Party in, in Taiwan is in power, uh, is very pro-China. And, uh, you know, and they're putting pressure on, their, on, on the public and on the government in Taiwan, and you know, if they win an election, the game is over. The Chinese know that. The Chinese know it very well. 
So it's a, it's, it's a close, uh, you know, there's a level of tension and pressure that well, some people are going to say it's not worth what it. What is it, China's three warfares or four warfares or how many, they've got the unrestricted warfare. It's cultural, it's political, no. it's economic. I and mean, they don't see it as just. That's right. It's, it's the whole spectrum. And that's you're saying that this is a much more nuanced way to get at Taiwan. Well, it's I, not very nuanced, but it's, uh, it's certainly uh, staged. Well, compared to showing up with a cruiser <laughs> and banging away with, with cannons. Right. Right. I mean, look, we, we've done a lot of studies of, of a, what would happen in a military attack on Taiwan, and, we, and, and every one of them concludes that the Taiwanese would lose unless we come in. And even if we come in, it's not a sure thing. The last can... one I heard about was we, even if we came in, we don't win. I said it's not a sure thing. Um, and so, you know, this is discouraging Washington. I think, you know, if you ask the current Joint Chiefs and the current leadership in the Pentagon, I think they say we don't want to, we, we don't want to get involved in a war there because we're going to lose, so we're not going to do it. Well, does the current Joint Chiefs want to get involved in any war anywhere? Not likely at the moment. Okay, so we've really we've really shut it down. Of course, down. nobody wants to get involved in a war. I mean, let, I don't I don't want to say something that's not true. I mean, the Pentagon is going to be war averse, just as they're risk averse. Well, you need to be. You've got to be calculated about that's how right. you get into something where you and, and we're dealing with nuclear powers. But on the other powers. hand, you, there are legitimate interests. You I need mean, to it, defend. It, it is their job to say if we get into a war, we ha we will find a way to win it. Uh, well, it, you know, to say well, we just don't want to do that is not really an option. Like the choice may not well, be handed to you, and if you are not, if you don't have a choice except to go to war, how do you win? That's their job. Yeah. That's where their job starts. Yeah, but there's another factor here. Uh, if we got involved in a conflict in Asia, we don't have any command and control systems with our allies in Asia, other than Korea. That's to say, we have no command and control system with Japan. We have absolutely nothing with Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, we have nothing with Australia, surprisingly, and, of course, nothing with India. I mean, if we were serious, we would put together a proper command and control system and at least have some capability to resist a Chinese attack. Right now, we can't do it by ourselves anymore. It's not possible. And Japan has a fairly interesting air force, has a good navy. Taiwan has a big air force, not as good as Japan's, but pretty good. But we can't even deconflict them in a conflict. So how can we how can we operate there? I mean, these are simple things, not simple operationally, but simple conceptually, that we could do to make uh, give us a chance to to prevail. And right now we're not taking that chance. We're just leaving it drift. And drift is very dangerous, extremely dangerous. Well, as predicted, we've run out of time, and we've gone past your wife's magic 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hear about it later. <laughs> Stephen's wife produces uh, webinars, and uh, we, we always seem to get, but we're all just getting very interesting here because <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if anybody's got any America first in them in the current uh, administration, and I'm hearing Not no. Not really. No. So the only solution to this is political. I mean, only, but I mean, the, the, in this administration, we're not likely to see yes, we need, change. We need some political change. Yeah. Kyle, last uh, last words. 
Uh, no, I think that's uh, I think that's right. I mean, the only America first in them is in their uh, their targeting and their counterterrorism interests. They're they're more focused on Americans than they are on on the rest of the dangerous world. Guys, working you're at the Center for Security Policy. You've got a terrific website. Your writings are all on there. You've got a blog. What's your blog? Is the Stephen Breyer uh, Brian's blog? Brian's blog. Yeah. And it's the go-to blog for almost everybody in the defense establishment. Lots of very interesting uh, strategic thinking and, and writing. And Kyle, you've done some amazing stuff. So I highly recommend if you are intrigued by what we've been talking about, next step would be the Center for Strategic Policy website. Uh, been talking with Stephen Breyer. Breyer. <laughs> Brian. we got to spell that name differently. And then Kyle Scheidler. The other one's ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, about uh, Afghanistan and its implications, and uh, this is not over, and we'll have them back to talk some more, and I hope you enjoy, enjoyed this, and as always, you can find us, subscribe on YouTube or uh, any of the other major podcast platforms or on our website, thebillwaltonshow.com. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guests on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.